section twenty one of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seven the puritan age sixteen twenty sixteen sixty part one historical summary the puritan movement in its broadest sense the puritan movement may be regarded as a second and greater renaissance a rebirth of the moral nature of man following the intellectual awakening of europe in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries in italy whose influence had been uppermost in elizabethan literature the renaissance had been essentially pagan and sensuous it had hardly touched the moral nature of man and it brought little relief from the despotism of rulers one can hardly read the horrible records of the medici or the borgias or the political observations of machiavelli without marvelling at the moral and political degradation of a cultured nation in the north especially among the german and english peoples the renaissance was accompanied by a moral awakening and it is precisely that awakening in england that greatest moral and political reform which ever swept over a nation in the short space of half a century which is meant by the puritan movement we shall understand it better if we remember that it had two chief objects the first was personal righteousness the second was civil and religious liberty in other words it aimed to make men honest and to make them free wrong ideas of the puritans such a movement should be cleared of all the misconceptions which have clung to it since the restoration when the very name of puritan was made ridiculous by the jeers of the gay courtiers of charles the second though the spirit of the movement was profoundly religious the puritans were not a religious sect neither was the puritan a narrow-minded and gloomy dogmatist as he is still pictured even in the histories pym and hamden and eliot and milton were puritans and in the long struggle for human liberty there are few names more honored by freemen everywhere cromwell and thomas hooker were puritans yet cromwell stood like a rock for religious tolerance and thomas hooker in connecticut gave to the world the first written constitution in which free men before electing their officers laid down the strict limits of the offices to which they were elected that is a puritan document and it marks one of the greatest achievements in the history of government from a religious viewpoint puritanism included all shades of belief the name was first given to those who advocated certain changes in the form of worship of the reformed english church under elizabeth but as the ideal of liberty rose in men's minds and opposed to it were the king and his evil counsellors and the band of intolerant churchmen of whom laud is the great example then puritanism became a great national movement it included english churchmen as well as extreme separatists calvinists covenanters catholic noblemen all bound together in resistance to despotism in church and state and with a passion for liberty and righteousness such as the world has never since seen naturally such a movement 
had its extremes and excesses and it is from a few zealots and fanatics that most of our misconceptions about the puritans arise life was stern in those days too stern perhaps and the intensity of the struggle against despotism made men narrow and hard in the triumph of puritanism under cromwell severe laws were passed many simple pleasures were forbidden and an austere standard of living was forced upon an unwilling people so the criticism is made that the wild outbreak of immorality which followed the restoration of charles was partly due to the unnatural restrictions of the puritan era the criticism is just but we must not forget the whole spirit of the movement that the puritan prohibited maypole dancing and horse-racing is of small consequence beside the fact that he fought for liberty and justice that he overthrew despotism and made a man's life and property safe from the tyranny of rulers a great river is not judged by the foam on its surface and certain austere laws and doctrines which we have ridiculed are but froth on the surface of the mighty puritan current that has flowed steadily like a river of life through english and american history since the age of elizabeth changing ideals the political upheaval of the period is summed up in the terrible struggle between the king and parliament which resulted in the death of charles at the block and the establishment of the commonwealth under cromwell for centuries the english people had been wonderfully loyal to their sovereigns but deeper than their loyalty to kings was the old saxon love for personal liberty at times as in the days of alfred and elizabeth the two ideals went hand in hand but more often they were in open strife and a final struggle for supremacy was inevitable the crisis came when james i who had received the right of royalty from an act of parliament began by the assumption of divine right to ignore the parliament which had created him of the civil war which followed in the reign of charles i and of the triumph of english freedom it is unnecessary to write here the blasphemy of a man's divine right to rule his fellow-men was ended modern england began with the charge of cromwell's brigade of puritans at naseby religious ideals religiously the age was one of even greater ferment than that which marked the beginning of the reformation a great ideal the ideal of a national church was pounding to pieces like a ship in the breakers and in the confusion of such an hour the action of the various sects was like that of frantic passengers each striving to save his possessions from the wreck the catholic church as its name implies has always held true to the ideal of a united church a church which like the great roman government of the early centuries can bring the splendor and authority of rome to bear upon the humblest village church to the farthest ends of the earth 
for a time that mighty ideal dazzled the german and english reformers but the possibility of a united protestant church perished with elizabeth then instead of the world-wide church which was the ideal of catholicism came the ideal of a purely national protestantism this was the ideal of laud and the reactionary bishops no less than of the scholarly richard hooker of the rugged scotch covenanters and of the puritans of massachusetts bay it is intensely interesting to note that charles called irish rebels and scotch highlanders to his aid by promising to restore their national religions and that the english puritans turning to scotland for help entered into the solemn covenant of sixteen forty three establishing a national presbyterianism whose object was to bring the churches of god in the three kingdoms to uniformity in religion and government to preserve the rights of parliament and the liberties of the kingdom that we and our posterity may as brethren live in faith and love and the lord may delight to live in the midst of us in this famous covenant we see the national the ecclesiastical and the personal dream of puritanism side by side in all their grandeur and simplicity years passed years of bitter struggle and heartache before the impossibility of uniting the various protestant sects was generally recognized the ideal of a national church died hard and to its death is due all the religious unrest of the period only as we remember the national ideal and the struggle which it caused can we understand the amazing life and work of bunyan or appreciate the heroic spirit of the american colonists who left home for a wilderness in order to give the new ideal of a free church in a free state its practical demonstration literary characteristics in literature also the puritan age was one of confusion due to the breaking up of old ideals medieval standards of chivalry the impossible loves and romances of which spencer furnished the types perished no less surely than the ideal of a national church and in the absence of any fixed standard of literary criticism there was nothing to prevent the exaggeration of the metaphysical poets who are the literary parallels to religious sects like the anabaptists poetry took new and startling forms in donne and herbert and prose became as sombre as burton's anatomy of melancholy the spiritual gloom which sooner or later fastens upon all writers of this age and which is unjustly attributed to puritan influence is due to the breaking up of accepted standards in government and religion no people from the greeks to those of our own day have suffered the loss of old ideals without causing its writers to cry ichabod the glory has departed that is the unconscious tendency 
of literary men in all times who look backward for their golden age and it need not concern the student of literature who even in the break-up of cherished institutions looks for some foregleams of a better light which is to break upon the world this so-called gloomy age produced some minor poems of exquisite workmanship and one great master of verse whose work would glorify any age or people john milton in whom the indomitable puritan spirit finds its noblest expression puritan and elizabethan literature there are three main characteristics in which puritan literature differs from that of the preceding age one elizabethan literature with all its diversity had a marked unity in spirit resulting from the patriotism of all classes and their devotion to a queen who with all her faults sought first the nation's welfare under the stuarts all this was changed the kings were the open enemies of the people the country was divided by the struggle for political and religious liberty and the literature was as divided in spirit as were the struggling parties two elizabethan literature is generally inspiring it throbs with youth and hope and vitality that which follows speaks of age and sadness even its brightest hours are followed by gloom and by the pessimism inseparable from the passing of old standards three elizabethan literature is intensely romantic the romance springs from the heart of youth and believes all things even the impossible the great schoolman's credo i believe because it is impossible is a better expression of elizabethan literature than of medieval theology in the literature of the puritan period one looks in vain for romantic ardor even in the lyrics and love poems a critical intellectual spirit takes its place and whatever romance asserts itself is in form rather than in feeling a fantastic and artificial adornment of speech rather than the natural utterance of a heart in which sentiment is so strong and true that poetry is its only expression part two literature of the puritan period the transition poets when one attempts to classify the literature of the first half of the seventeenth century from the death of elizabeth sixteen o three to the restoration sixteen sixty he realizes the impossibility of grouping poets by any accurate standard the classifications attempted here have small dependence upon dates or sovereigns and are suggestive rather than accurate thus shakespeare and bacon wrote largely in the reign of james i but their work is elizabethan in spirit and bunyan is no less a puritan because he happened to write after the restoration the name metaphysical poets given by dr johnson is somewhat suggestive but not descriptive of the followers of donne the name caroline or cavalier poets brings to mind the careless temper of the royalists who followed king charles 
with a devotion of which he was unworthy and the name spencerian poets recalls the little band of dreamers who clung to spencer's ideal even while his romantic medieval castle was battered down by science at the one gate and puritanism at the other at the beginning of this bewildering confusion of ideals expressed in literature we note a few writers who are generally known as jacobean poets but whom we have called the transition poets because with the later dramatists they show clearly the changing standards of the age samuel daniel fifteen sixty two sixteen nineteen daniel who is often classed with the first metaphysical poets is interesting to us for two reasons for his use of the artificial sonnet and for his literary desertion of spenser as a model for poets his delia a cycle of sonnets modeled perhaps after sidney's astrophel and stella helped to fix the custom of celebrating love or friendship by a series of sonnets to which some pastoral pseudonym was affixed in his sonnets many of which rank with shakespeare's and in his later poetry especially the beautiful complaint of rosamond and his civil wars he aimed solely at grace of expression and became influential in giving to english poetry a greater individuality and independence than it had ever known in matter he set himself squarely against the medieval tendency let others sing of kings and paladins in aged accents and untimely words paint shadows in imaginary lines this fling at spencer and his followers marks the beginning of the modern and realistic school which sees in life as it is enough poetic material without the invention of allegories and impossible heroines daniel's poetry which was forgotten soon after his death has received probably more homage than it deserves in the praises of wordsworth southey lamb and coleridge the latter says read daniel the admirable daniel the style and language are just as any pure and manly writer of the present day would use it seems quite modern in comparison with the style of shakespeare the songwriters in strong contrast with the above are two distinct groups the songwriters and the spencerian poets the close of the reign of elizabeth was marked by an outburst of english songs as remarkable in its sudden development as the rise of the drama two causes contributed to this result the increasing influence of french instead of italian verse and the rapid development of music as an art at the close of the sixteenth century the two songwriters best worth studying are thomas campion fifteen sixty seven question mark sixteen nineteen and nicholas breton fifteen forty five question mark sixteen twenty six question mark like all the lyric poets of the age they are a curious mixture of the elizabethan and the puritan standards 
they sing of sacred and profane love with the same zest and a careless love song is often found on the same page with a plea for divine grace the spenserian poets of the spenserian poets giles fletcher and wither are best worth studying giles fletcher fifteen eighty eight question mark sixteen twenty three has at times a strong suggestion of milton who was also a follower of spenser in his early years in the noble simplicity and majesty of his lines his best-known work christ's victory and triumph sixteen ten was the greatest religious poem that had appeared in england since piers plowman and is not an unworthy predecessor of paradise lost the life of george wither fifteen eighty eight sixteen sixty seven covers the whole period of english history from elizabeth to the restoration and the enormous volume of his work covers every phase of the literature of two great ages his life was a varied one now as a royalist leader against the covenanters and again announcing his puritan convictions and suffering in prison for his faith at his best wither is a lyric poet of great originality rising at times to positive genius but the bulk of his poetry is intolerably dull students of this period find him interesting as an epitome of the whole age in which he lived but the average reader is more inclined to note with interest that he published in sixteen twenty three hymns and songs of the church the first hymn-book that ever appeared in the english language the metaphysical poets this name which was given by dr johnson in derision because of the fantastic form of dunn's poetry is often applied to all minor poets of the puritan age we use the term here in a narrower sense excluding the followers of daniel and that later group known as the cavalier poets it includes dunn herbert waller denham cowley vaughan davenant marvel and crashaw the advanced student finds them all worthy of study not only for their occasional excellent poetry but because of their influence on later literature thus richard crashaw sixteen thirteen question mark sixteen forty nine the catholic mystic is interesting because his troubled life is singularly like dunn's and his poetry is at time like herbert's set on fire Note, see for instance the hymn to saint teresa and the flaming heart abraham cowley sixteen eighteen sixteen sixty seven who blossomed young and who at twenty-five was proclaimed the greatest poet in england is now scarcely known even by name but his pindaric odes note so called from pindar the greatest lyric poet of greece end of note set an example which influenced english poetry throughout the eighteenth century henry vaughan sixteen twenty two sixteen ninety five is worthy of study because he is in some respects the forerunner of wordsworth note see for instance childhood the retreat corruption the bird the hidden flower for vaughan's mystic interpretation of childhood and nature End of note. and andrew marvel 
1621-1678 because of his loyal friendship with milton and because his poetry shows the conflict between the two schools of spencer and dunn edmund waller 1606-1687 stands between the puritan age and the restoration he was the first to use consistently the closed couplet which dominated our poetry for the next century by this and especially by his influence over dryden the greatest figure of the restoration he occupies a larger place in our literature than a reading of his rather tiresome poetry would seem to warrant of all these poets each of whom has his special claim we can consider here only donne and herbert who in different ways are the types of revolt against earlier forms and standards of poetry in feeling and imagery both are poets of a high order but in style and expression they are the leaders of the fantastic school whose influence largely dominated poetry during the half century of the puritan period john dunn fifteen seventy three sixteen thirty one life the briefest outline of dunn's life shows its intense human interest he was born in london the son of a rich iron merchant at the time when the merchants of england were creating a new and higher kind of princes on his father's side he came from an old welsh family and on his mother's side from the haywoods and sir thomas more's family both families were catholic and in his early life persecution was brought near for his brother died in prison for harboring a proscribed priest and his own education could not be continued in oxford and cambridge because of his religion such an experience generally sets a man's religious standards for life but presently dunn as he studied law at lincoln's inn was investigating the philosophic grounds of all faith gradually he left the church in which he was born renounced all denominations and called himself simply christian meanwhile he wrote poetry and shared his wealth with the needy catholic relatives he joined the expedition of essex for cadiz in fifteen ninety six and for the azores in fifteen ninety seven and on sea and in camp found time to write poetry two of his best poems the storm and the calm belong to this period next he traveled in europe for three years but occupied himself with study and poetry returning home he became secretary to lord egerton fell in love with the latter's young niece anne moore and married her for which cause dunn was cast into prison strangely enough his poetical work at this time is not a song of youthful romance but the progress of the soul a study of transmigration years of wandering and poverty followed until sir george moore forgave the young lovers and made an allowance to his daughter instead of enjoying his new comforts dunn grew more ascetic and intellectual in his tastes he refused also the nattering offer of entering the church of england and receiving a comfortable living by his pseudo-martyr 
he attracted the favor of james i who persuaded him to be ordained yet left him without any place or employment when his wife died her allowance ceased and dunn was left with seven children in extreme poverty then he became a preacher rose rapidly by sheer intellectual force and genius and in four years was the greatest of english preachers and dean of st paul's cathedral in london there he carried some to heaven in holy raptures and led others to amend their lives and as he leans over the pulpit with intense earnestness is likened by isaac walton to an angel leaning from a cloud here is variety enough to epitomize his age and yet in all his life stronger than any impression of outward weal or woe is the sense of mystery that surrounds dunn in all his work one finds a mystery a hiding of some deep thing which the world would gladly know and share and which is suggested in his haunting little poem the undertaking i have done one braver thing than all the worthies did and yet a braver thence doth spring which is to keep that hid dunn's poetry dunn's poetry is so uneven at times so startling and fantastic that few critics would care to recommend it to others only a few will read his works and they must be left to their own browsing to find what pleases them like deer which in the midst of plenty take a bite here and there and wander on tasting twenty varieties of food in an hour's feeding one who reads much will probably bewail dunn's lack of any consistent style or literary standard for instance chaucer and milton are as different as two poets could well be yet the work of each is marked by a distinct and consistent style and it is the style as much as the matter which makes the tales or the paradise lost a work for all time done through style and all literary standards to the winds and precisely for this reason he is forgotten though his great intellect and his genius had marked him as one of those who should do things worthy to be remembered while the tendency of literature is to exalt style at the expense of thought the world has many men and women who exalt feeling and thought above expression and to these dunn is good reading browning is of the same school and compels attention while dunn played havoc with elizabethan style he nevertheless influenced our literature in the way of boldness and originality and the present tendency is to give him a larger place nearer to the few great poets than he has occupied since ben jonson declared that he was the first poet of the world in some things but likely to perish for not being understood for to much of his poetry we must apply his own satiric verses on another's crudities infinite work which doth so far extend that none can study it to any end george herbert fifteen ninety three sixteen thirty three o day most calm most bright sang george herbert and we may safely take that single line as expressive of the whole spirit of his writings 
professor palmer whose scholarly edition of this poet's works is a model for critics and editors calls herbert the first in english poetry who spoke face to face with god that may be true but it is interesting to note that not a poet of the first half of the seventeenth century not even the gayest of the cavaliers but has written some noble verse of prayer or aspiration which expresses the underlying puritan spirit of his age herbert is the greatest the most consistent of them all in all the others the puritan struggles against the cavalier or the cavalier breaks loose from the restraining puritan but in herbert the struggle is past and peace has come that his life was not all calm that the puritan in him had struggled desperately before it subdued the pride and idleness of the cavalier is evident to one who reads between his lines i struck the board and cried no more i will abroad what shall i ever sigh and pine my lines and life are free free as the road loose as the wind there speaks the cavalier of the university and the court and as one reads to the end of the little poem which he calls by the suggestive name of the collar he may know that he is reading condensed biography those who seek for faults for strained imagery and fantastic verse forms in herbert's poetry will find them in abundance but it will better repay the reader to look for the deep thought and fine feeling that are hidden in these wonderful religious lyrics even in those that appear most artificial the fact that herbert's reputation was greater at times than milton's and that his poems when published after his death had a large sale and influence shows certainly that he appealed to the men of his age and his poems will probably be read and appreciated if only by the few just so long as men are strong enough to understand the puritan's spiritual convictions life herbert's life is so quiet and uneventful that to relate a few biographical facts can be of little advantage only as one reads the whole story by isaac walton can he share the gentle spirit of herbert's poetry he was born at montgomery castle Note, there is some doubt as to whether he was born at the castle or at black hall recent opinion inclines to the latter view End of note wales fifteen ninety three of a noble welsh family his university course was brilliant and after graduation he waited long years in the vain hope of preferment at court all his life he had to battle against disease and this is undoubtedly the cause of the long delay before each new step in his course not till he was thirty-seven was he ordained and placed over the little church of bemerton how he lived here among plain people in this happy corner of the lord's field hoping all things and blessing all people asking his own way to zion and showing others the way should be read in walton it is a brief life less than three years of work before being cut off by consumption but remarkable for the single great purpose and the glorious spiritual strength that shine through physical weakness 
just before his death he gave some manuscripts to a friend and his message is worthy of john bunyan deliver this little book to my dear brother ferrar and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt god and my soul before i could subject mine to the will of jesus my master in whose service i have now found perfect freedom desire him to read it and then if he can think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul let it be made public if not let him burn it for i and it are less than the least of god's mercies herbert's poems herbert's chief work the temple consists of over one hundred and fifty short poems suggested by the church her holidays and ceremonials and the experiences of the christian life the first poem the church porch is the longest and though polished with a care that foreshadows the classic school the least poetical it is a wonderful collection of condensed sermons wise precepts and moral lessons suggesting chaucer's good counsel pope's essay on man and polonius's advice to laertes in hamlet only it is more packed with thought than any of these of truth speaking he says dare to be true nothing can need a lie a fault which needs it most grows too thereby and of calmness in argument calmness is great advantage he that lets another chafe may warm him at his fire among the remaining poems of the temple one of the most suggestive is the pilgrimage here in six short stanzas every line close packed with thought we have the whole of bunyan's pilgrim's progress the poem was written probably before bunyan was born but remembering the wide influence of herbert's poetry it is an interesting question whether bunyan received the idea of his immortal work from this pilgrimage probably the best known of all his poems is the one called the pulley which generally appears however under the name rest or the gifts of god when god at first made man having a glass of blessings standing by let us said he pour on him all we can let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span so strength first made a way then beauty flowed then wisdom honor pleasure when almost all was out god made a stay perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay for if i should said he bestow this jewel also on my creature he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature not the god of nature so both should losers be yet let him keep the rest but keep them with repining restlessness let him be rich and weary that at least if goodness lead him not yet weariness may toss him to my breast among the poems which may be read as curiosities of versification and which arouse the wrath of the critics against the whole metaphysical school are those like easter wings and the altar which suggest in the printed form of the poem the thing of which the poet sings 
more ingenious is the poem in which rhyme is made by cutting off the first letter of a preceding word as in the five stanzas of paradise i bless thee lord because i grow among thy trees which in a row to thee both fruit and order owe and more ingenious still are odd conceits like the poem heaven in which echo by repeating the last syllable of each line gives an answer to the poet's questions the cavalier poets in the literature of any age there are generally found two distinct tendencies the first expresses the dominant spirit of the times the second a secret or an open rebellion so in this age side by side with the serious and rational puritan lives the gallant and trivial cavalier the puritan finds expression in the best poetry of the period from donne to milton and in the prose of baxter and bunyan the cavalier in a small group of poets herrick lovelace suckling and carew who writes songs generally in lighter vein gay trivial often licentious but who cannot altogether escape the tremendous seriousness of puritanism thomas carew fifteen ninety eight question mark sixteen thirty nine question mark carew may be called the inventor of cavalier love poetry and to him more than any other is due the peculiar combination of the sensual and the religious which marked most of the minor poets of the seventeenth century his poetry is the spenserian pastoral stripped of its refinement of feeling and made direct coarse vigorous his poems published in sixteen forty are generally like his life trivial or sensual but here and there is found one like the following which indicates that with the metaphysical and cavalier poets a new and stimulating force had entered english literature ask me no more where jove bestows when june is past the fading rose for in your beauty's orient deep these flowers as in their causes sleep ask me no more where those stars light that downwards fall in dead of night for in your eyes they sit and there fixed become as in their sphere ask me no more if east or west the phoenix builds her spicy nest for unto you at last she flies and in your fragrant bosom dies robert herrick fifteen ninety one sixteen seventy four herrick is the true cavalier gay devil-may-care in disposition but by some freak of fate a clergyman of dean prior in south devon a country made famous by him and blackmore here in a country parish he lived discontentedly longing for the joys of london and the mermaid tavern his bachelor establishment consisting of an old housekeeper a cat a dog a goose a tame lamb one hen for which he thanked god in poetry because she laid an egg every day and a pet pig that drank beer with herrick out of a tankard with admirable good-nature herrick made the best of these uncongenial surroundings 
he watched with sympathy the country life about him and caught its spirit in many lyrics a few of which like corinna's maying gather ye rosebuds while ye may and to daffodils are among the best known in our language his poems cover a wide range from trivial love songs pagan in spirit to hymns of deep religious feeling only the best of his poems should be read and these are remarkable for their exquisite sentiment and their graceful melodious expression the rest since they reflect something of the coarseness of his audience may be passed over in silence late in life herrick published his one book hesperides and noble numbers sixteen forty eight the latter half contains his religious poems and one has only to read there the remarkable litany to see how the religious terror that finds expression in bunyan's grace abounding could master even the most careless of cavalier singers suckling and loveless sir john suckling sixteen o nine sixteen forty two was one of the most brilliant wits of the court of charles i who wrote poetry as he exercised a horse or fought a duel because it was considered a gentleman's accomplishment in those days his poems struck from his wild life like sparks from his rapier are utterly trivial and even in his best-known ballad upon a wedding rarely rise above mere doggerel it is only the romance of his life his rich brilliant careless youth and his poverty and suicide in paris whither he fled because of his devotion to the stuarts that keeps his name alive in our literature in his life and poetry sir richard lovelace sixteen eighteen sixteen fifty eight offers a remarkable parallel to suckling and the two are often classed together as perfect representatives of the followers of king charles lovelace's lucasta a volume of love lyrics is generally on a higher plane than suckling's work and a few of the poems like to lucasta and to althea from prison deserve the secure place they have won in the latter occur the oft-quoted lines stone walls do not a prison make nor iron bars a cage minds innocent and quiet take that for an hermitage if i have freedom in my love and in my soul am free angels alone that soar above enjoy such liberty End of section twenty one